This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to The Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Listeners, welcome back to the Humane Podcast. Today, I have a special guest on our show, Heaven Reese, who works at the Francis Crick Institute in the United Kingdom. He's a researcher and scientist and also a new author of a machine learning book with Manning Publications called Machine Learning with R, Tidyverse, and MLR, which goes live in just a couple weeks. Kevin, thank you so much for being with us on Humane. Thank you very much for having me. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Oh, this is so fun, you know, because there's so much going on in the world. And, you know, we offline were just speaking before the episode about coronavirus. And that is not a topic that's fun. It's a topic that is very serious. And as if it's the only topic the world has been talking about for the past two months. Now, you're a researcher traditionally, and you've actually worked a lot in biology and medical systems. I wanted to hear your take on what's going on with the coronavirus around research? Sure. I mean, I want to caveat this by saying that I'm not a virologist or an epidemiologist. So my view is uh, is not that of someone who is an expert on this virus. But I mean, it's clearly something that's very serious and that we need to take serious and sort of treat with respect. But um, having said that, I I think because it's... um, it's new. It's likely transmitted from a bat. It makes for a, a very um, cool and sort of sexy and mysterious and, and worrying news story. And so as much as the um, the virulence of the, the virus itself is concerning, I think of particular concern is the how viral misinformation and, and sort of um, 
misinformed practice has, has gone along with it. So, for example, I think health bodies around the world have basically said that, you know, wearing face masks is very unlikely to prevent you from contracting um, COVID-19. And that actually, uh, I also heard that um, somebody suggested or, or a study suggested that wearing face masks could even increase your likelihood of, of contracting it. And these sort of panic measures that people go through, you know, buying face masks or panic stocking up on on foods and supplies because they think, you know, this is going to be sort of a T-virus or, a, you know, result in, in such a extreme impact on the population. It does obviously kill people in it and people have sadly died from it. I think the people that have died have largely been um, older people, people with underlying health conditions already, or people that have been immunocompromised for the vast majority of, of people that are healthy and have strong functioning immune systems, you know, if you contract COVID-19, you're going to feel pretty rubbish. I mean, you get symptoms very similar to the flu, but it's very unlikely to um, kill you. And this is the other thing that, that really we need to sort of ground ourselves and remember is that the strains of influenza that we sort of already know about and live you know, with in, in our communities, you know, you have colleagues, friends, family who get flu sometimes. Those strains are much more prevalent, infect so many more people and have higher mortality rates than um, COVID-19. Uh, I think one of the reasons why we're talking about it so much and why it is such a big deal is that COVID-19 is particularly virulent. It is easily transmittable more than, than um, influenza. But it's important um, for the sake of people's health um, as much as anything to just remain grounded and, and not panic and just stay calm and monitor the disease and to implement practices that actually stop the spread. So rather than issuing face masks, which, you know, take away face masks from medical professionals as we, we've had in, in the UK, we've had shortages for, for people that actually need them, is just implementing hand washing techniques. Hand washing is the most effective way to prevent the transmission of COVID-19. So as far as research goes, um, I can't comment an awful lot because um, here at the Francis Crick, it's not a, a actually a project that I'm aware of that, that we are researching, but I know a number of institutes and hospitals around the world um, looking for a vaccine. But it's an influenza um, virus, so it's not going to be something that's going to be um, cured. And, and for the vast majority of us, if you contract it, it may just be a case of letting it run its course until you feel better. And self-isolating, of course, you know, if you... If you feel like you have flu-like symptoms, whether it is just a normal flu, just don't go to work, don't go to school, you know, self-isolate, prevent others from, from getting ill as well. Speak to your local um, healthcare providers and, and seek advice. But uh, yeah, that's kind of my non-virologist <laughs> um, take on, on the current situation. And actually, I'm going to complain again. I don't know if, if people were here earlier. I'm going to complain about what is otherwise an absolutely beautiful dashboard. And I do love a, a lovely dashboard. But the black and red, it, uh, <laughs> it, it evokes sort of uh, walking dead uh, sort of um, feelings of uh, pandemics and uh, end of the world vibes. <laughs> That's right. You know, I've been working with students uh, lately on some capstone projects. We've been using both the Python and R programming languages. And one of the groups said they want to work on the coronavirus COVID-19 project. And I said to them, all right, well, you know, I actually um, had an article that came out a few weeks ago on Medium uh, where mm. I was talking about how to fight the coronavirus with AI and data science. And by this point, many people might know that Blue Dot Global is, you know, the big company out in Toronto 
show that's been the same company, actually, that predicted a lot for both SARS and Ebola and, and other conditions. But, you know, I, I said to this team uh, that's wanting to work at Python R, I said, what data is available? You know, I think where we are in 2020 is everyone gets so exciting, you know, when you go through and you see, wow, Harvard's working on this. You know, yes, people are wearing face masks. There's so much you can do, like, just like you mentioned, quarantine yourself to stave off a global pandemic. But it's really not just that. It's all about the data, right? Mm-hmm. And so you need to be able to have data to extract insights. And when we you know, look at dashboards, whether they're from Johns Hopkins University or um, the Ministry of Health in Singapore, which has a similar one as well, and even the Korean government, their Ministry of Health recently made public their data, it's so sparse. There is not that much information available. And so the students I work with say, I want to do all this great feature analysis. I want to do all these great visualizations. If Johns Hopkins can do it, I can do it too. And I say, Yes, you can, and you need data. And I think that's one of the big challenges we're experiencing in 2020, which I'd love to dive deeper with you during our show, is about, you know, as a new author, the work that you're focusing on is in the R programming language. And whether it's for healthcare or social scientists or, or any type of researchers, I know that you focus generally on three major areas of R uh, in your book, the tidyverse, Tibble, and MLR. You know, when we look at these packages, they all do something so unique and different and very different in their own respect than Python, but they're not all machine learning. There's a lot more to the packages than that. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about your inspiration of why you've come out with this book to start with? And then we'll dive deeper into some of those topics. Yeah, absolutely. So I I feel like I I should start by... um caveating or apologizing almost because I am an outsider. I should really put that straight out there. I am not a computer scientist and I am not a machine learning researcher. So why have I got any business uh, writing um, a book like this? So um, I work in um, life sciences. I um, studied as a a pharmacologist trying to understand how drugs work. And then my PhD was in um, immunology. And uh, basically, throughout my PhD, the questions that we were asking and the sorts of um, data and volume of data that we were generating started to mean that the sort of traditional analysis um, methods that uh, we had been using and that other people in biological fields were using started to, to not quite um, suit our needs, not quite answer our questions. So I started working with um, R. Uh, One of the reasons being was that it was free uh, and that I was a poor student. Um, Working with R, learning it from the the ground up. um, And of course, I'm I'm still learning, which I think is true of of anyone that uh, uses a programming language. And then starting to learn more about and understand and apply um, and then get valid answers from uh, machine learning um, techniques applied to, to the data. And then the thing in biological life sciences is that the level of maths, le- um, uh, maths literacy tends not to be always that great, at least in academia. And if you are someone who knows how to code, who knows and uh, understands how to model things with statistics or apply machine learning, you sort of become um, gold dust. So I started to um, teach um, statistics, R and, and machine learning during my PhD. And um, just for... Um, 
accessibility so that people could either watch again or if they missed uh, my lectures, I'd record them and stick them on YouTube. So I just had a YouTube channel with uh, a few videos on a few different topics to do with data science and uh, or R or statistics. And then I, I got contacted by um, Manning, who apparently publishes have these people that sort of go around looking for candidates to write books for them, who stumbled on my YouTube channel and asked me if I'd submit a, a book proposal. And I said, uh, thank you, but um, thank you. But there are people that are definitely more qualified um, than I am to write this book. You know, you probably want to contact the sort of um, Hadley Wickham's and the data scientists and machine learning engineers. And they said, well, yeah, there are, there are some phenomenal books by those kinds of people, but that we really want a book from the perspective of someone that has come to machine learning and AI and has learned it and applied it to their, their daily lives because they really wanted a, a book that was um, not for computer scientists necessarily, but more for uh, people who were an expert in their own area. Uh, but who could use and benefit from um, machine learning. So, and also as a, as a slight uh, embarrassment on my part, um, the book changed names <laughs> at some point. So you'll notice that the name there that you can see on your screen is, uh, is no longer the, the final running title. And so I started writing the book with the view that it would be a book for people who are experts in their own field. So maybe academics, researchers, um, journalists, um, economists, maybe people who are experts in their own fields and who don't necessarily want to or can't or have the time to become experts in something else because I mean to become an expert in something takes years but who could benefit from understanding and learning uh, machine learning to basically make predictions and extract meaningful insights from the data that they have and uh, I kind of wrote it for uh, myself sort of 10 years ago thinking about um, how stupid I was, how, um, not stupid, I, I, I don't assume the readers are, are stupid at all, but I, I was stupid. For my level of um, maths understanding and for someone who at, at that time had, you know, not much knowledge or experience with machine learning. So it's a fun sort of sometimes tongue-in-cheek approach to machine learning that assumes you have some basic knowledge of R or quite frankly, if you have basic Python skills, I mean, R and Python, you know, you, you'll be able to pick up R very quickly. So people that maybe have some basic R or, or, or Python skills, but who are new to machine learning and um, to make things um, simple and fun and also to teach a, a modern approach to um, machine learning. I teach the Tidyverse set of packages um, that basically help make your data science um, skills nice and, and streamlined and allow you to do extremely complex um, data manipulation and transformation very easily and also to create beautiful graphics with the ggplot2 package and then that then makes the machine learning much easier and the, the, the machine learning I use the uh, MLR package which gives you a really nice uniform interface to a huge variety of machine learning techniques and approaches. I'm as graphical as I can be and I present the math as much as possible as a nice to know rather than a need to know. So if, you know, people's math skills, uh, because I, I'm not fantastic at maths at all. I'm a, a stereotypical biologist. So if your math skills are not phenomenal, that does not mean that you won't be able to dive into the book and start using these techniques. I love everything that you've been sharing, Heaven, because similar to yourself, I got started not as a traditional data scientist, but I got started with the Carpentries. And this is an organization that's very much focused with researchers, genomics, uh, ecology, and scientists on, you know, empowering scientific learning with code. And um, 
In fact, one of the first workshops that I delivered was all about R with visualization using ggplot2 and analysis. Uh, And it was amazing. I was working on this back in, I think, 2014. And I said, oh my goodness, what have I been missing out on using Microsoft Mm -hmm. Excel when there's this (laughs) R programming language? Um, And it completely rocked my world. And you know, since then, I continued my learning journey, which has been back and forth with R and SQL and Python and other languages, but it's moved very much towards Python. But I think this year in 2020 is very special. I think it is a comeback year for R. I think it is a big comeback year. And I wanted to hear, why do you think that is? Mm-hmm. Um, R and uh and Python have this very strange relationship, I feel. There is this weird rivalry between which is better and, you know, proponents of R say that R is better, proponents of Python say that Python is better. And uh, it can be fun and tongue-in-cheek sometimes, but actually I think it can also um, hurt people's um, learning sometimes uh, because, you know, they'll hear from someone, oh, you know, R is rubbish, only use Python. And then they're missing out on some phenomenal data science tools. I think the answer to the question of, whether somebody should learn R or Python is yes. People should use either or, or both. Python is excellent and has boasted some things that um, I think if you were to look back at R a few years ago, Python would, would probably have, have been a more convenient choice for a lot of people for um, machine learning, for example, or if people were going to end up deploying uh, apps from the projects that, that they were working on. And one of the things I think that Python would sort of have been considered winning over R for a long time is the phenomenal scikit-learn package, which is amazing and gives you this common interface to a huge number of um, machine learning tools and algorithms. And the reason that Python had won in that category was because R um, and and having CRAN and the way that um, people contribute things to R is that basically every machine learning algorithm that was um, implemented by someone was implemented by someone else in a different package. And these different packages and functions had different interfaces, different arguments. And every time you wanted to learn to apply a new technique, you'd need to read the documentation and learn a new package again. Whereas in scikit-learn, you had this single interface. Um, But then come along packages like Carrot or MLR um, in R, which um, were kind of R's answer to um, scikit-learn and create this common interface so that you, you learn how to use that package. And then substituting in a variety of different machine learning techniques and algorithms is extremely simple. And Carrot is... Um, phenomenal, but uh, my preference and, and what I wrote about in my, in my book is, is MLR. Maybe I, we can talk a little bit about why later. But I think one of the reasons why R is potentially um, packages like Carrot and MLR are, are helping R make a comeback. I think probably really though, you can put it down to sort of um, Hadley fever. People like Hadley Wickham and the guys from R Studio and you know the other um, contributors to the Tidyverse packages. If anyone is, is not aware um, already what uh, the Tidyverse is, it's a, a collection of um, data science packages. Ah, no sooner have I said than there's uh, <laughs> on the screen. Uh, a set of um, packages for R that are designed to make common data science tasks extremely easy, clean, and reproducible. And of course, there's nothing that you could 
that in a, in a tidyverse that you could not do using base R code. But in using the tidyverse, it makes your code much more readable, much easier, much faster uh, in terms of typing anyway. And so um, as you can see on your, your screen there, so um, the tidyverse is a set of packages and, and the core packages are uh, dplyr, which is for uh, manipulating um, and transforming your data. So, you know, selecting columns, filtering rows, mutating new columns, things like that. The absolutely famous ggplot2 plotting library is, uh, and I'm a little bit biased, I guess, but is, in my opinion, the best plotting library that there is, uh, is phenomenal. Reader for um, reading in data in a tidy format and uh, Tibble. So if, if people are, are familiar with um, R and, and reading data into R, you'll be familiar with um, the data frame um, structure. Tibble is a package that creates a new data structure called the Tibble that um, just gets rid of a few of the features that most data scientists dislike about data frames. So for example, the whole strings as factors thing, um, when you um, create Tibbles, um, you don't have to worry about that. And printing of your data is, is much nicer. The tidier package for um, converting between long and wide format and uh, the per package, which um, is phenomenal, it allows you to um, vectorize your, your functions. So for loops can be a, a thing of the past, basically. It's extremely powerful. And so my book, I dedicate a whole chapter uh, to these tools that hopefully will, you know, one, make people better, faster and enjoy their data science projects more. And then once people have got those under their belt, then when we move on to the meaty machine learning chapters, we use these tools over and over again, uh, repeatedly, so that people get a real, a real good feel for them. But it's sort of been a bit of a renaissance in R, all these packages coming out part of the tidyverse, that R has become very sexy and fashionable again among um, data scientists. And... Those sort of traditional differences as well in terms of um, fields, I think, as to whether certain fields use R or Python, I think, have hung around. So for me, anyway, in sort of academic biology, it's mostly R, at least here in UK. I think because um, for a lot of people, because R has always sort of had that mission of being a statistical language specifically, it's very, you know, geared specifically towards that. So people um, that have been doing, you know, maybe basic linear modeling, R has kind of fit that bill. So that's what they've learned and that's what they've, they've gone with. Um, people looking to do, uh, to train neural nets, um, to do deep learning, I think have um, traditionally linked towards uh, Python. I think a lot of the deep learning libraries um, have been interfaced from Python first, but actually now, you know, you can interface with um, Keras, TensorFlow, H2O um, within R, um, as well. So there isn't really anything that you can do in one or the other. I mean, Shiny now allows people to create web apps very easily using R, to create dashboards using R. So yeah, I, I, I think Tidyverse, um, I think Shiny, which I, yeah, I hadn't really mentioned, and these unified machine learning interfaces, I think, have played a big role in making R cool again, because I think some had predicted that it would fall by the wayside. You know, it's amazing to think that uh, Python today has over 200,000 projects and it's become so big with so many developers, but it's become so scattered, right? And mm. for R, you know, R today has less than 10% 
of the number of packages from Python, but there's such a unified mission. I think that's what I'm hearing mm-hmm. uh, from yourself today, Heaven, that it's all these researchers and scientists collaborating together. I mean, these packages that we're looking at uh, that are provided in the tidyverse, as someone like myself who's more focused in Python, I mean, to me, it sounds like this is the answer to matplotlib and pandas and numpy and a lot of these visualization and analysis packages that researchers in Python took for granted, but as you mentioned, Heaven, was not always available for those who were solving problems in R. You know, they had, there was great statistical mm-hmm. packages, but now it's, now it's a complete solution. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's basically, there's no reason for Python and R um, to compete really anymore. The, the people should use whatever they feel more comfortable using, you know, and, and depending on what your colleagues and, and what the people in your field use. And then whatever one you start learning, when you get confident in that one, learn the other one. Like uh, my Python skills lag far behind uh, my, my R skills, but it, I'm, I'm in the process of trying to learn Python because there are, there are useful things that, that both can do. And of course, you know, we can interface with Python from within R and R Studio, um, for example. So, you know, we can incorporate code from both languages. Yeah. And actually even, uh, so one of the things that has sort of put me off using uh, Python for some of my projects is that uh, I I wasn't a big fan of matplotlib. But now actually you can even interface with ggplot2 from within um, Python. So there's there's really no excuse. (laughs) Yeah, it's so amazing how interoperable the languages are getting. I mean, all the latest visualization packages, machine learning packages are basically saying, if you want R, you want Python, we are here to help you to be successful with that. And, you know, I think two of the big ones that have been very state-of-the-art recently, you know, one is Plotly. That's been pretty big Mm -hmm. in Python space, but has full interoperability with R as well. And then even beyond that, um, as you mentioned, you could in notebooks or script files do code that is also interoperable between Python and R. And there's a few packages there, but one that's really nice is Reticulate from Mm -hmm. RStudio. So it's pretty cool to see that developers now have the options to code with either or both without necessarily the concern of being pigeonholed into just a package. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One thing as well that um, is very nice about the R uh, well, about using R, and, and I know less that for Python, so may- maybe I can get you to, to comment on it, um, is that R has a phenomenal community of people. You, you need only to, to tweet a question or um, and ask for opinions um, and hashtag R stats, and you get a ton of uh, really nice, uh, supportive um, answers back. And the huge amount of support on you know, um, GitHub or, or Stack Overflow, it just, it seems like the R community has a sort of one uh, mindset of, you know, let's create useful, helpful packages that are actually going to make a difference to people and, and help people contribute to those as well. I don't know if, if Python is, has a similar feel. I, I, I'm not sort of embedded in that community. It's so interesting because with Python, you know, when you think of um, the language, you know, although it is so popular, I think the challenge is it's such a distributed language. So Mm. you have, you know, people flying drones with Python. You have people who are building web apps with Python and those who are doing statistics and machine learning. So it's so scattered. And I think that's, Mm -hmm. that's one of the challenges there, you know, and by its nature, that could be one of the reasons that Python does have about, you know, what, more than 10 times as many packages, but that doesn't mean they have as much 
quality. I think it's really we need to have quality over quantity. Yeah, I mean, submitting a, a, a package to um, CRAN, you know, the, the Comprehensive Ar- Archive Network, I think is, I mean, it's not a difficult process at all if you write your package well, but, but writing a, um, a package um, for it to be submitted on to CRAN has to meet certain criteria. You know, the documentation has to be of a certain quality and laid out in a certain way. The, the script files have to be laid out and documented in a, um, a certain way. So I think the, the whole CRAN submission process sort of selects for good quality packages, I think. And then, quite frankly, you know, if there are poor packages, I mean, people won't use them. <laughs> and people are, are quite happy to, you know, um, submit pull requests and, and uh, help contribute to each other's code, which is, um, is, is quite nice. But there's an additional um, repository of... Um, our package is called Bioconductor, which is held separately from Crown, which is um, specific for, um, well, it, it tends to be bioinformatics um, type packages. So things for uh, genome sequencing data and, and, and that sort of thing. And they, they have a similar process for, you know, your package has to meet a certain level of, uh, of yeah, exactly, Bioconductor, yeah. Excellent. Well, I think looking at all this, both with R and Python, I think one of the common threads we're seeing as developers is, 2020 open source is making a huge comeback. We're seeing the democratization of machine learning and AI systems. I mean, one of the core packages that you mentioned you're featuring in your book is MLR. And MLR mm-hmm. is, you could say, it is the answer to scikit-learn, right? It's R's way to go all in and say, you know, we can do it just as good as you can. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about why you think R is democratizing data science and how MLR is part of that process? Yeah, so I, I think the people that are asking um, the really important questions you know, whether to do with business or, or science or health or whatever, the people that, that know how to ask and are asking those important questions are the ones that should be able to harness and implement um, statistics, data science and machine learning to get those answers. I don't think that machine learning should be the purview only of mathematicians and, and computer scientists. I know that people get scared by this and there is sort of a, a gatekeeping argument to be made to say, you know, you can do a lot of harm actually if you employ these techniques and you don't um, do it in a way that is ethical or you don't do it in a way where you validate your, your results properly. But I really strongly think that as long as you teach people how to do things properly, that they have a, enough of an understanding of how the techniques work and what they do and what they don't do, then uh, absolutely we can democratize uh, machine learning and make it so that you know researchers can identify the patients that are at higher risk of contracting COVID nineteen. So um, you know, for example, my my book is not um, going to train the next generation of machine learning researchers. You know, from reading my book, people are not going to be designing self-driving cars or, you know, swapping Obama's face onto the body of another actor or, or, you know, that that sort of thing. But we can absolutely teach people to be able to use these techniques to extract the answers or make the predictions that that they're looking for in, in their field of expertise. And I spend a lot of time in book, in the book, showing people how to properly validate their models. Uh, and we do it again and again and again. And, and that is really important. The MLR package, which stands for machine learning in R, funnily enough, 
is, uh, I mean, when I discovered it, it kind of changed my world. It, it, it's phenomenal. As you said, I think it is kind of um, ours answer to scikit-learn, along with the, the carrot package. And it provides a unified interface to a huge number of not only actual um, machine learning algorithms, but also think um, processes and functions like um, missing value, um, imputation, um, hyperparameter tuning, um, validation techniques. And when you're setting up um, a, a project or to run an analysis with um, MLR, um, the basic um, run through is that you um, create a task. And the task is simply a definition of um, the data sets that you're working with. And if you are um, performing a supervised uh, machine learning task, you also define the target. So you tell it which variable or variables you're hoping to predict from the data. So you define um, your task. The second step is that you define your learner. And the learner is simply a definition of what algorithm you are going to learn to try to um, learn the patterns in your data, along with then any um, options or, or hyperparameters that you want to supply um, to that. And the way that MLR has been written is so that um, it already comes with um, a huge array of um, well-known machine learning algorithms, you know, from things like K-nearest neighbors to XGBoost. You can interface deep learning models with it. But the way it's been written is that it, it is meant to be very easy for anyone. You know, if you have a function that is uh, defines the way that a machine learning algorithm works, you can implement your own function. And actually, you can also implement your own performance metrics and other things in it as well. So it's, it's extremely extendable. So once you've defined your, your task, your learner, you then simply combine the two to train your model. So those, those three steps are present in any kind of workflow with MLR. Um, and it sort of sounds a little bit cumbersome, but it's, it's really useful because if you define a single machine learning task, so you know, I supply uh, my data and I supply um, maybe my target variable is a, a categorical variable stating whether somebody was infected by um, COVID-19, for example, you can then, with that one task definition, you can benchmark a huge number of um, different algorithms against that same task. Or alternatively, if you define a task, you can then benchmark that one task across, um, uh, sorry, benchmark that one learner uh, against uh, a large variety of different tasks. So it allows you to set up um, machine learning experiments to test how different algorithms um, perform on, on different settings. I mean, that, that's fine. That's easy. I mean, that you can do that um, quite easily with other packages like Carrot, or, or you could do this manually. Um, I think where um, MLR particularly shines is um, it makes it extremely simple to validate your models, for example. So whether you're performing um, holdout validation or you're doing more complicated things like um, Nested's K-fold cross-validation, it's extremely simple to set that up. Um, you could set up a tenfold a nested cross-validation with um, 10 uh, inner folds and three outer folds or, or whatever that, that you want to do. And it allows you very easily to incorporate any data-dependent pre-processing steps inside your, your validation. So I, I think one of the mistakes that a lot of people make when they start training um, some complex machine learning models is that they do things like missing value, imputation, maybe hyperparameter tuning, uh, maybe feature selection, and they don't include that inside their model validation. And so when they finally validate their model, they get an inflated sense of how good that their model is going to perform. Um, and MLR allows you to create these wrapper functions that allow you to include as many pre-processing steps as you want inside the validation. So, you know, say in the simple case, you split your data into a simple train test validation set. 
it will perform all of those those processes um, for you um, during training and then test and, and um, validate your data. And if you're doing something more complicated like nested cross-validation, it'll ensure that, for example, if you're tuning a hyperparameter, for example, um, all those different hyperparameter values that you test across will be given the same test set, for example. So it makes these things very easy. You can also parallelize your code with the help of the parallel package in R. Um, so if you're training models that are um, quite intense, MLR works very nicely with um, parallelization. That's a surprisingly hard word to say. <laughs> and I'm a very lazy person. I like to achieve as much as I can in my data science projects with as little code as possible. Um, and MLR helps me achieve that because you can do some extremely complicated um, validation pre-processing with very small amount of code. Um, I'm a so, lazy uh, learner as well. <laughs> I enjoy preparing and planning. And for those of us who are listeners who are data scientists, when I say lazy learner, you might know what I'm talking about. But for the rest of us, it's all about planning, preparation, <laughs> getting those computational graphs set up. You know, look, it sounds like MLR definitely is the answer, right, to scikit-learn. But I, I wanted to briefly dive into those other packages you mentioned and that I've mentioned that are still around. And, you know, if someone's looking to learn R, you know, why would they want to consider picking up Carrot? So what's your take on Carrot? I mean, Carrot is excellent. I've spent um, some time working. Well, okay, so I, I've um, not spent as much time working with Carrot as I have MLR. Um, but Carrot is very nice. Carrot has um, functions that you can use to um, split your data into um train, test, validation sets. That's quite nice. You can use it to interface with a huge number of machine learning models, and you can also um, extend it to uh, include other packages as well. And it has functions for, it has the ability for you to perform um, data pre-processing steps, like missing value, um, imputation, and things like that. And you can use it to also include those things inside your, your validation. But if you're doing some very complicated um, validation, I find it a bit more cumbersome to use. I also find um, setting up ensembling much easier in MLR. So it's funny when you when you look at um, tutorials for um, either bagging or boosting, people always just talk about decision trees because uh, they've had a lot of success and that's where those famous algorithms are. Um, but of course, like we all know that you can use bagging and, and boosting for um, algorithms other than than um, decision trees. And with MLR, you can set up ensembles of whatever machine learning model um, that you want to. Um, and you can combine different algorithms within um, your same um, ensembling if you want to. I don't think this is quite as easy inside um, Carrot. MLR also has a, a nice system of plotting your tuning procedures. For example, if you're performing hyperparameter tuning, it's very simple. You simply pass the tuning results to its functions and it, it plots the, the tuning data for you. But both are, are useful. I, I think... MLR has been a little, become a little bit more, more popular recently. I think Carrot has been sort of the mainstay. It's been there um, for a long time. It's very good. There's nothing that you can do in MLR that you can't do using Carrot. So it sort of comes back again to the sort of, well, you know, do I need to use one or, or the, the other? I think if I was to compare the ease of use and readability, I, I think MLR would, would win for me anyway. Um, I mean, if people are, are used to, to writing in carrots, um, give MLR a go um, and see whether you, you prefer its, its interface. I also find benchmarking in, in MLR a lot easier and nicer. You simply give it the task, you give it a list of 
learners and um, run the function and it benchmarks um, all of those um, against the same task and importantly um, provides each with the same training set and test set partition as well so you get a nice accurate um, estimate of how each model is performed. So I'm going to make a bet here for the first (laughs) time on Humane. So what I'm hearing is similar to in Python where scikit-learn and PyTorch have just taken over all machine learning from research to implementation. We're seeing that in MLR as a rise of a an awesome package to basically be that one-stop shop. Carrot will still be around, but also the final package I wanted to hear your take on today is a newcomer to the space. And I know it wasn't featured much in your book, but a lot of people are talking about it in our community. I wanted to hear, what do you think about tidy models? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is very nice. So this is is a... a, a it's actually also a, a set of packages that comes from the Tidyverse. And in a similar way to the, in that um, MLR is trying to create a uniform interface to um, machine learning, Tidy Models is a, a packages that is trying to create a unified approach to modeling in general. So um, that this um, in- includes, and I think is probably more widely used um, as um, linear modeling. Um, so to create a unified interface to, you know, whether people are using um, the LM function for linear modeling in R or whether people are using um, the BRMS package for, for Bayesian um, modeling. I don't really talk about it much in my book. The reason being is that the way that MLR learns models is a little bit different and that if you want to get the actual um, R model object out of your final MLR um, object, you, you need to um, um, extract that first. But if people are, uh, are training models, the parsnip function that is part of um, tidal mod- uh, models gives you a unified interface to modeling. So no matter what kind of, um, for example, linear model um, that you're modeling, you don't have to memorize you know, the different um, functions and arguments that um, you might need for, you know, say, for example, if you're fitting a regularized linear model, then compare that to uh, the, whatever package or function you might use to fit a, a non-regularized um, linear model. So parsnip is a function um, that, uh, sorry, is a, a package um, that allows you to keep the syntax the, the same. The dials package is, uh, again, part of tidy, uh, tidy models that is designed for um, tuning um, parameters. And, and so with parsnip, you can use dials to tune um, hyperparameters um, if you're, you're um, searching a parameter space. And the way that the models are um, output is in a, a tidy format. So um, if people are used to using the, the LM linear model function in R, um, you'll know that if you call your, your object, you get um, a lot of information printed out, but it's not very tidy. Um, it, it's sort of in a, a strange layout that I think was deemed to be visually or aesthetically pleasing when the function was written, but now is uh, not very convenient to extract um, particular things from. So for example, if you want to extract, you know, particular coefficients or um, confidence in, in intervals from your model output, it's um, it's not as, I mean, it's not difficult, but it's not as uh, nice. And uh, if you use, if you're looking at the output from models from multiple different packages to extract the same information, you might need to use different syntax. And so when you train your models using tidy models, you get this tidy output where, you know, your model output is arranged into rows and columns, and it's very easy to work with and extract um, information from. Um, oh, yeah, you've got the, the, yeah, exactly. 
Excellent. Well, we've talked a lot about different packages today in R, and uh, you are a new author, Heaven Reese. You're going to be having your book coming out this month in March, on March 15th. It's focused on machine learning with R, Tidyverse, and MLR. For you and your experience... <laughs> well, at least it's not, uh, what is it, uh, R for mortals. But, you know, uh, we are all yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're all mortals here, but uh, hopefully we will all do well, you know, in the, the fight against coronavirus. But, you know, gearing things back to your book, I mean, what was one of the most exciting things or enjoyable things about you publishing your book and becoming uh, an author? So one of the things was um, people actually starting to, to ask me questions about content in the book, because then I finally realized that, that people were, were reading it. So Manning do this thing um, called the uh, Manning Early Access product, where basically, so you can see Meep there, um, where basically the, the, the book has been available to buy as a, an ebook um, for um, a few months already, um, and now the the entire book is is available. And as part of that, um, they have a a book forum, and people can read uh, the book uh, there and can highlight mistakes that I've made uh, <laughs> um, even before the book has been finally proofread, which was a bit strange, and can ask questions on there. So th- I think that was particularly exciting because. People were asking questions, which was nice because they wanted my opinion and, and understanding of things. And it also showed me that people had actually, you know, people have actually bought this book, <laughs> and it's actually a real thing, which is um, phenomenal. The other thing was, uh, I guess, when the the process that Manning goes through for producing a book is um, extraordinary. It's extremely um, robust. I wrote the book. It was read by, um, you know, my editor, a technical editor. Uh, several people that were experts in, in particular areas. And then once they deemed that the book was in, or, or certain chapters were in good enough condition, it gets sent off to um, reviewers. And so it get, got sent off to, uh, I think, like 18 people to read and then give me their feedback. And that was absolutely terrifying because uh, you sort of put this content out there for people to read. And then suddenly, of course, you're open for uh, to, to scrutiny and criticism. But uh, it was it was very nice because when um, the, the reviewers came back, they came back with some very nice, helpful comments. But the, the feedback was um, um, overwhelmingly uh, positive, which was very nice. Also, I can't wait to have an actual physical paper book in my hand because of course at present it's just uh, it's just an ebook so when I can finally hold the book in my hand I think that will make it finally real and uh, I, I can't promise that I won't cry either like <laughs> it's been a bit of a roller coaster writing it it's taken me quite a long time but I I, I, I really do think that um, it's an excellent book and, and I, I it sounds very braggy of me and I, I don't mean it to be because Although I wrote the content, a huge number of people other than me have, have made the book um, very good. So I do think that um, people will, will learn a lot and get um, a lot from it. Um, and if you don't, then contact me and I'll, I'll apologize. But uh, I, I think e- even if people are not new to R and you're not new to machine learning, if you're interested in the MLR package, um, I think you would still get some benefit from it. That's right. Even if people are not new to R, they'll learn a lot about R. See what I did there? Uh, (laughs) I love the R programming language. Um, I think it's making a huge comeback this year in 2020. Um, And Heaven Reese, thank you so much for sharing everything that you're doing with Tidyverse, with MLR, and the whole Tidy ecosystem in your book. Coming out uh, March 15th, paper, physical copies. Thank you for being with us on the Humane Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app, and tune in to more episodes of Humane. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.